to the Damascus Road podcast. On the road to Damascus, Paul had a radical encounter with Jesus and his life was changed forever. That is what we hope and pray for here. Now, on to this week's episode. All right. So I'm sure everyone missed me when I was gone for a whole week uh, for spring break, right? Because I was gone. I was taking three of our amazing students to Los Angeles for a community service trip. And we served the homeless population at a dining hall, and we learned a lot about housing justice from our friend Jill. But the bulk of our work was serving the Hispanic Foursquare Church in Pasadena. So this church was really amazing. They were really loving and just excited about God. And the church has new pastors, Jose and his wife, Marisol Lopez. They're the ones on the right. Um, So this beautiful couple has so many dreams for serving their neighborhood, and their biggest dream is to convert half of the property into a youth center. So in order to get that project going, we were helping them clear out two buildings worth of stuff and then demolishing those buildings. Um, So college students are really good at breaking things, but they aren't as trained at organizing things yet. So that job really fell on me. I was given many titles in this process, such as the connoisseur of trash and the director of garbage. I basically had to work through 30 years of accumulated stuff and decide what was garbage and what wasn't. Things like dozens of old toolboxes, thousands of rusty nails, a huge pile of half-empty paint cans and forgotten chemicals, fake flowers in every shade and hue, glass vases to hold said flowers, parking cones, abandoned instruments, unused plumbing pipes, and long-forgotten children's toys. As I did this job, I began to get really angry. I was so mad that people had been negligent with their property, and I was mad that they didn't take responsibility for their bad purchases and unfinished projects, and instead stuffed them away, out of sight. It took 20 people and three days of work. We filled two huge trailers worth of space with the junk. And as I grumbled about the state of the property with Marisol, she said it wasn't even that bad. Um, She said she'd taken eight other trailers worth of trash in the year that she had been there. She understood the anger better than I did because the people responsible for it were her own parents and her friends. Having extra storage can be great, but it's a delayed curse. When you put your stuff away in the darkness, you don't have to look at it. You don't have to think about how bad it is. But when it gets dragged into the light, it's very overwhelming. Marisol explained to us that without outside help, this property would have never gotten cleaned. The work was simply too much, physically and emotionally, for their church to deal with. But thankfully, God's church is not just tiny, isolated communities, but a worldwide kingdom that comes together to lift each other up. By the end of the week, there was so much joy as the property cleared up, and um, there was just a vision of the future that was becoming more and more clear. The mess is a part of their history, but it doesn't determine their future. When we build our futures, we aren't given a blank slate. We are given the broken pieces of the past, and we have to work with what we have. Our mistakes and traumas and our parents' mistakes and traumas all compound into something new that will either crush us or be transformed into something beautiful. Miraculously, Jesus is able to take the messy past and make something new out of it that doesn't erase the past but brings beauty out of it. Our new lives with Jesus shine brightly not in spite of but mysteriously because of the darkness we used to live in. Uh, But this process isn't easy or straightforward, and it involves a lot of failure. It's very true 
that when you're young, you make stupid mistakes. Um, but the narrative that is untrue is that you will stop making mistakes once you grow up. To any of our kiddos here, I'm here to break the news to you that the adults don't have it all together. Despite the temporary illusion of control, arson inevitably, inevitably sneaks up on us and it accumulates into shameful junk closets that you will eventually have to help us clean out. Just because people know better doesn't mean that they do better. Uh, as humans, it's not a question of if we will fail again, but when and how bad. Even our heroes are subject to failure. Um, that's what makes the account of the disciples during Holy Week so compelling. The scriptures we will soon celebrate on Easter are stained with stupid decisions, cowardice, and unexpected betrayal. Because even the men who lived and served by Jesus' side for years couldn't escape failure. Uh, that's what our series Felix Culpa is all about. Felix Culpa is a Latin phrase translated roughly to fortunate fall or a happy fault. It's when something extremely tragic happens, but somehow because of that tragedy, an even greater victory is made possible. In other words, our failures are what stain us, but Felix Culpa is the process of taking those pieces of stained glass and turning them into a window for God's light to shine through. As we prepare for Easter, we will be looking at the fall of the disciples before and after the crucifixion. And more importantly, we will be looking at how the light of the gospel shines brightly through those failures. In order to understand the victorious big picture of Easter, we have to acquaint ourselves with the fractured pieces of tragedy. And who can be more tragic than the disciple Judas Iscariot? So we don't often talk about Judas Iscariot. Actually, I don't think I've ever heard a sermon on him, likely because we feel like we've already understood his story. He's a betrayer, he's a villain, and a cautionary tale. Yet his presence lingers over us. He's right there on the left. Um, every week when we take communion, uh, he's right there with Jesus taking the Last Supper on the night he was betrayed. So why is he always there? Why is he right at the center of it all? Let's see if we can find out. In the week leading up to Easter, uh, Jesus and his disciples traveled into Jerusalem to celebrate Passover. And as he rode in on a donkey, he was welcomed by great crowds. And later in the week, he was eating dinner, and a woman anointed him with expensive perfume. After this is when we start to see Judas fall. Matthew 26, we read, Then Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve disciples, went to the leading priest and asked, how much will you pay me to betray Jesus to you? And they gave him 30 pieces of silver. From that time on, Judas began looking for an opportunity to betray Jesus. Some of the biggest mysteries of the Bible are held in Judas' story. Like, why did, he per why did he betray his perfect rabbi? How could he do it? Was it his choice, or did the devil make him do it? And what if he hadn't done it? Did things really have to go down that way? His life has been highly debated throughout history, and there isn't one clear answer. But pondering it can give us an insight into the bigger picture of the gospel and how it applies to our own failures. So first, let's address the why. The common hypothesis for Judas' betrayal has always been greed. At this point, Jesus was talking a lot about his death, and he was trying to warn his disciples of the coming days. And he said he would rise again as well, but I don't think anyone really listened to that part. And all, Jesus, all Judas knew was that Jesus' ministry wasn't going to last much longer. Maybe he wanted to get the most out of the situation before it ended. 
Judas was paid 30 coins by the leading priests, which is about $4,000 today. Uh, now, this isn't a ton of money, but it's enough to get a fresh start. Another hypothesis is that he may have just gotten scared. This is a big reason for the other disciples' failures in the next 24 hours, so it makes sense. His leader was going to die, and maybe he just didn't want to go down with the ship. Um, both of these hypotheses, however, are secondary reasons for something deeper. That for some reason, Judas was not on board with Jesus' mission. Uh, maybe he was a zealot like Simon, and he didn't want to follow Jesus if it didn't lead to the restoration of Israel as a nation. Maybe Jesus just demanded too much of him, and he didn't want to give up the ways of the world, especially as the stakes were getting higher. Maybe he believed the lies of the devil and convinced himself he was doing a good thing. We don't know, but it's not hard to speculate, right? We all know people have turned their backs on Jesus, and it's not hard to fill in the blanks. It would be nice to say that we could see it coming all along, and we can always tell who the bad guys are, but that isn't true. Like I said earlier, sin has a way of sneaking up on us. At the Last Supper, the other disciples did not suspect Judas at all. The only one who knew was Jesus. Matthew 26 continues, When it was evening, they reclined at table with the twelve. He reclined at table with the twelve. As they were eating, he said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me. And they were very sorrowful and began to say to him one after another, Is it I, Lord? And he answered, He who has dipped his hand in the dish with me will betray me. The Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. Judas, who would betray him, answered, Is it I, Rabbi? He said to him, You have said so. When Jesus says he'll be betrayed, no one points a finger at Judas. They surprisingly point the finger at themselves. They are each keenly aware of their own fears and doubts at this moment, and they see potential for failure in themselves before they see it in each other. And yet another mystery reveals itself as to why Judas even asked. Maybe he wanted to see if Jesus could see through his schemes to see if he would get away with it. But this chapter tells us that he was looking for an opportunity to betray Jesus, so maybe he hadn't made up his mind completely. It could be a genuine question. Is it me, Jesus? Will I go through with it? Will I sell out, or will I keep my faith? Again, we don't know. But now that we have observed Judas' fall, we can zoom out and start seeing the bigger picture. Pastor Tim Mackey, who's the creator of the Bible Project, has been doing an awesome sermon series on the book of Matthew, and he makes the argument that the Last Supper is layered with parallelism. We can use these parallels as cues, as clues, to give us insight into Jesus' betrayal. He says that the dish being referenced um, is likely a part of the Passover tradition of dipping the karpas, which are bitter herbs, into salt water, and that's a representation of tears. Twelve young men dipping into a symbol of bitterness and tears is supposed to make us think of something. It's supposed to make us think of Joseph and his brothers. Jacob, the patriarch, who was renamed Israel by God, had 12 sons. When the second youngest and the favorite, Joseph started having prophetic dreams about his own greatness, his brothers betrayed him. Uh, they sold him into slavery and faked his death. They dipped his coat of many colors in the blood of a lamb. And they gave it to their father, Jacob, who wept with great bitterness. Joseph's story is a Felix Culpa story. Because even though his life was so disrupted and harmed by his brother's sin, it ultimately led to so much good. 
Joseph was put into just the right circumstances over many years that eventually led to him becoming the second in command of Egypt. When there was a famine and his brothers needed food, they came to Egypt for help. Joseph messed with his brothers a little bit, as brothers should, but he eventually wept with joy and he forgave them and he saved them from the famine and made a home for God's people in Egypt. What Joseph says to them perfectly captures the spirit of Felix Culpa. You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. The connection between these two stories is the core truth that God uses everything, even the worst things, to bring redemption. The terrible, traumatic experiences of Joseph were somehow ordained and repurposed by God to save Israel's family from perishing. Um, And this connection also highlights the similarities between the 12 brothers and the 12 disciples. The same way all 12 brothers dip the coat in the blood of the lamb, all 12 disciples dip the carpas into salty water. There is a level of culpability in everyone involved, not just Judas. Peter denied Jesus three times, Thomas doubted the resurrection, and all of them deserted Jesus when he was arrested. Another important connection to the story of Joseph is that he was sold as a slave, and the price paid for Jesus was 30 pieces of silver, which is the price of a slave. Exodus 21 says if the bull goes a male or female slave, the owner must pay 30 shekels of silver to the master of the slave, and the bull is to be stoned to death. And 30 pieces of silver was the precise amount that the prophets Zechariah and Jeremiah prophesied that Jesus would be sold for. Zechariah 11 says, if you like, give me my wages, whatever I am worth, but only if you want to. So they counted out for my wages 30 pieces of silver. The betrayal was prophesied about long before it happened, because it was always going to be a part of God's plan. The pieces of our stained glass window are connected, and they are all coming together. So that's just one clue to help us understand the betrayal of Judas. Let's keep reading from Matthew to see um, what happens in the garden. So Matthew 26 continues, Then he came to the disciples and said, Go ahead and sleep, have your rest. But look, the time has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Up, let's be going. Look, my betrayer is here. And even as Jesus said this, uh, Judas, one of the twelve disciples, arrived with a crowd of men armed with swords and clubs. They had been sent by the leading priests and elders of the people. The traitor Judas had given them a prearranged signal, You will know which one to arrest when I greet him with a kiss. So Judas came straight to Jesus. Greetings, Rabbi, he exclaimed and gave him the kiss. Jesus said, my friend, go ahead and do what you've come for. Then the others grabbed Jesus and arrested him. So we talked about this garden very recently in our Holy Places series when Megan um, helped us to see the theme of renewal that is found in gardens. Um, Gardens are places of renewal because they are also places of anguish. When we read about Gethsemane, we are supposed to also think about the Garden of Eden. The betrayal of uh, Jesus here by Judas in this garden is deeply connected to the betrayal of God by Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve's failure was the first Felix culpa. It is what brought darkness into the world, and that darkness has impacted us all. Even the men who walked by Jesus' side for years could not escape its reach not even through the best education or effort or proximity to greatness. Romans 3 says, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. 
That is the tragic reality of the fall. But the fortune of the fall is that God did not give up on his children despite their failure. He sent his own son to bring light back into the world. Jesus paid the price that we could not pay, and he did it willingly. What the devil intended for evil, God intended for good. Holy Week is an account of tragedy, failure, betrayal, and rejection. And yet, it is the pinnacle of our hope. Through the betrayal of Jesus, a kingdom was inaugurated, and all of us were given a new life. It is as if Jesus is repeating the words of Joseph back to Judas. You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. In Romans, Paul teaches us to see Jesus as a foil or an opposite of Adam. Yes, Adam, uh, yes, Adam's one sin brings condemnation for everyone, but Christ's one act of righteousness brings a right relationship with God and new life for everyone. Because one person disobeyed God, many became sinners. But because one other person obeyed God, many will be made righteous. God's law was given so that all people could see how sinful they are. But as people sin more and more, God's wonderful grace became more abundant. So just as sin ruled over all people and brought them to death, now God's wonderful grace rules instead, giving us right standing with God and resulting in eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. All of these stories of Felix Culpa are woven together, and they all point us to our Savior, the one who is able to make failures fortunate. Asking why Judas betrayed Jesus is like asking why Adam and Eve ate the fruit. And sometimes we can only answer those questions by asking ourselves why we sin. In many ways, the stained glass mirror or the stained glass window is a mirror and it reflects our own stories back to us. We have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But we have also been given the opportunity to be redeemed and we have been given a new life. We are both sinners and saints. We are a creation both haunted and holy. Brennan Manning, author of the Ragamuffin Gospel, puts it this way. When I get honest, I admit I am a bundle of paradoxes. I believe and I doubt. I hope and get discouraged. I love and I hate. I feel bad about feeling good. I feel guilty about not feeling guilty. I am trusting and suspicious. I am honest and I still play games. Aristotle said I am a rational animal. I say I am an angel with an incredible capacity for beer. To live by grace means to acknowledge my whole life story, the light side and the dark. In admitting my shadow side, I learn who I am and what God's grace means. As Thomas Merton put it, a saint is not someone who is good, but who experiences the goodness of God. Jesus did not come for perfect people. He came for broken people, willing to let him redeem their story again and again. Even though failure is inevitable, it does not have to be the end of the story for those who put their hope in Jesus. Um, but tragically, this story is not about someone who put their hope in Jesus. Unlike the 11 other disciples and countless Christians since, Judas did not get to experience the fortune of the fall. Matthew continues, very early in the morning, the leading priests and the elders of the people met again to lay plans for putting Jesus to death. Then they bound him, led him away, and took him to Pilate, the Roman governor. When Judas, who had betrayed him, realized that Jesus had been condemned to die, he was filled with remorse. So he took the 30 pieces of silver back to the leading priests and elders. I have sinned, he declared, for I have betrayed an innocent man. 
What do we care, they retorted. That's your problem. Then Judas threw the silver coins down in the temple and went and hanged himself. The leading priest picked up the coins. It wouldn't be right to put this money in the temple treasury, they said, since it was payment for murder. After some discussion, they finally decided to buy the potter's field, and they made it into a seminary for foreigners. That is why the field is still called the field of blood. They fulfilled the prophecy of Jeremiah that says, they took the 30 pieces of silver, the price at which he was valued by the, the people of Israel, and purchased the potter's field, as the Lord directed. Although God made something beautiful out of this betrayal for mankind, there's nothing good in it for Judas. He didn't live to see the resurrection, and many people have speculated on how things would be different if he just hadn't ended his life here. If he had just waited two days, would he have repented like the other disciples? We will never know. What we do know is that he did not repent. He experienced remorse and shame, but that's not the same as repentance. To repent means to return to God, but when he had to face the consequences of his decisions, his suicide was a terrible choice to run away from God. This doesn't mean that we can't have compassion for Judas or for anyone else who makes this decision. We should have immense compassion for them. The rational brain knows that suicide is a permanent solution to a temporary problem, but it is usually made by desperate people who feel their solution, that their situation will continue to stay permanently unlivable. Um, my uncle Stan took his life a few years before I was born, and I'm really grateful for my family who always told me stories about him with great compassion. I know it was painful for them, but I'm glad that they talked about him so often. They used that awful trauma to teach me and my brothers that life is sacred and that life is missed. Um, when we talked about my uncle, they used it as a time to teach us that you must trust God with your life. Even when you don't see a light at the end of the tunnel, you must wait for the light because God doesn't abandon his children. You must wait on the Lord. And you must call on him in times of trouble because he will come to you. Uh, my family also never let us debate about whether or not my uncle was in heaven because uh, they knew it's not our place to decide. Only God knows the state of my uncle's soul, but we sincerely hope to see him in heaven one day. Um, I was reminded of this part of my family history a few months ago when a student asked me to pray for her stepfather. She said he was coming face to face with the consequences of his actions and he was in danger of self-harm. She said he had been a terrible husband and father to his past family and he had ignored that guilt for decades. Even though she was grateful to God for pushing her stepfather to acknowledge his sin and hopefully repent, she also recognized the danger in it. And to look at your sin face to face and see your corruption and your brokenness laid bare can be absolutely terrifying. It can either push us into despair or into the arms of Jesus. People will often spend their lives ignoring their darkness and terror or will by, by some miracle find grace and learn how to shine light into it. In Brennan Manning's book, The Ragamuffin Gospel, he refers to ragamuffins as people who have experienced a fortunate fall. They are broken people who don't fit in and because of their state as outsiders are uniquely able to shine the light of Christ. They're often messy, poor, addicted, depressed, and scarred in the consequences of their own sin. He says, for ragamuffins, God's name is mercy. We see our darkness as a prized possession because it drives us into the heart of God. 
Without mercy, our darkness would plunge us into despair. For some, self-destruction. Time alone with God reveals the unfathomable depths of the poverty of the spirit. We are so poor that even our poverty is not our own. It belongs to the mysterious tremendum of a loving God. We have so much to learn from fortunate fallers because they know that they need God. People who have hit rock bottom know the saving power of God's grace in a way that many of us don't. They know they are prone to great failure on their own, so they rely on the spirit instead of themselves. A faith of fortunate falls sticks out so differently from a world that lives in denial of its own darkness. Like the disciples who could not predict their own failure, we're guilty of the same thing. We turn a blind eye to our weaknesses because they are too hard to look at. We delude ourselves into thinking we aren't prone to sin and that temptation won't get the better of us. But ignoring our sin is what gives it power and shame thrives in secrecy. It is by being aware of our weaknesses and paying attention to temptation that we can ask God for the help we really need. When we finally admit that we need God, we will find him. I love this verse from the hymn, Come Thou Fount. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Take this heart, Lord, take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. Accepting that we are stained glass lets God's light shine through us. Accepting our humanity pushes us into the arms of Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. So I encourage you to examine your darkness. Bring out the junk from the storage closet and take a really good look at it. I deem you all connoisseurs of trash. And as you look into that darkness, have hope that God will use your failure for good. God wants to repurpose the broken glass of your life into beautiful pieces of art that bring glory to his kingdom. There's nothing so broken that it can't be redeemed. If God could use Joseph's brother's sin of human trafficking to save a nation, he can use you too. If he can use Judas's betrayal to save the souls of many, he can use you too. In fact, many people's greatest strengths are often the result of God redeeming their weaknesses. The people who are bullied become the greatest encouragers. The poorest become the most generous. The anxious wrecks often become the leaders of our faith. The strongest parts of our bodies are the parts that have been through the most wear and tear. So don't be afraid to take risks and fall on your face once in a while. If you get a scrape, just rub some dirt in it. <laughs> the good news of the gospel is that your failure is not the end of the world. It's just the start of a new story. If you fall to the ground, your heavenly father will catch you and your friends here will too. Lastly, I highly encourage you to participate in Holy Week, including the Holy Thursday Seder meal and the Good Friday Stations of the Cross. Uh, many Christians miss out on the meaningful traditions of this week and only celebrate Easter, but taking time to think about the whole story, the Last Supper, and the crucifixion before we get to the resurrection makes it so much more impactful. Um, my favorite part of the Holy Week is the Seder Passover meal, which is the meal Jesus was eating at the Last Supper. It's all about the exodus from Egypt, which is a Felix Culpa story. Each part of the meal gives a symbolic insight into the story and the ways it's connected to Jesus. We'll hide bread from children, and we'll drink lots of wine, and I promise you'll have a great time. I'm so excited to celebrate with all of you to see how fortunate we are in Christ. Felix Culpa means that we don't need different stories to be beautiful. Felix culpa means our sins are merely stories of grace to become.
we are on our way to victory. Let me pray for us. Um, God, I thank you so much that you are so powerful, that you always have a plan. Um, I love your creativity and your love for your people, that you redeem our stories. Um, I pray for us as we go into the Easter season, um, just prepare our hearts to understand what this means and um, to let you into our hearts to see our darkness and let your light shine into it. We love you so much, God, in your name we pray. Amen. Thank you for joining the Damascus Road podcast. Our mission is to follow Jesus together by being with God, loving everyone, transforming people, developing leaders, growing new ministries, and changing the world. You can find out more about us online at damascusroadtucson.com.